My name is Jonah. My pronouns are they, them, theirs, and I'm one of your pastors here at Zao. And we are just getting right into it with that reading, aren't we? Anybody have some like little feels bubbling up? You know, there are not a lot of particularly classic purity culture uh, texts, but, but that is one that is drawn on a lot. And so we wanted to start here, kind of in the thick of it, with some of the language that has been used to harm and abuse a lot of people so that we can really break it down at the source. And that is what we are doing in general. Welcome to Pure Trash, putting purity culture where it belongs. We are going to be spending the next five weeks examining the roots of purity culture, the impact of purity culture and sex negativity in our religious spaces and beyond, and really breaking it down, understanding what is God's will for us, what does the Bible actually say, how can we as spiritual community have beautiful, flourishing, romantic, and or sexual lives in a way that is both holy and divine, because we know that can be true, and is body positive, sex positive, queer and feminist, revolutionary. We can do these things, but we have been told for generations now that we cannot, that those things are opposed to one another. And so we are here to break that down, put that in the trash where it belongs, and begin a new reclaiming our holiness, our bodies, our sex, our sexuality, and our revolutionary spirit that we are given by Jesus, the brown-skinned, radical Palestinian peasant who has a plan for the world, and it doesn't involve kneeling to the Roman Empire. So, sex. We are pretty messed up about sex, right? In our culture in general. And I want, before I get into, for the next five weeks, the ways the church has messed us up about sex, I want to just name that, like, we are messed up about sex in general. Racism has messed us up about sex the way that it has sexualized or desexualized people on the basis of racialized oppression. Misogyny has messed us up about sex in the ways that it has dictated strict gender roles and again created hierarchy and power imbalance among people. Capitalism has messed us up about sex by commodifying sex and bodies, by treating bodies and sex as property, ownership, whose pleasure is valued, whose is taboo, these come from a lot of places. And purportedly, the church is here to save us, to swoop in, to save us from those nasty billboards and porn sites, and give us the key to a healthy, godly sexuality. Who here feels saved? <laughs> no, the church messed us up about sex as much or more than any of those other things. And this has been going on for a long time. Strict patriarchal, sex-negative, body-shaming legalism in Christianity has been a sin that has rooted itself in our religious community for a very long time. But it took on a particular flavor in the early 90s. <laughs> in the early 90s, there was an evangelical movement of purity culture. This is the true love waits, get yourself a ring, take, take your dad to the prom, kind of weird, like, Everyone gets abstinence-only education in schools, uh, culture of the white evangelical church. 
that pervaded so many other spaces, made its, its way into spaces beyond that origin of white evangelicalism and actually invaded probably most of the communities that folks here represent whether or not we had direct contact with its, its source point. Now purity culture loves its little metaphors. Chewed up gum, dirty, passed around, unwrapped chocolate, a cup of spit. I don't know if anybody was ever around for that one. Just having everybody spit into a cup in a, in a room and then saying, who wants to drink it? These, yeah. These are the degrading and disgusting metaphors that purity culture uses for sex. And it is meant to alienate us from our bodies, to teach us from an early age that sex and sexuality is disgusting, and that we are disgusting if we are sexual, or if we are alive to our bodies, to our sexuality, to the impulses of human connection. Now... We've got, we've got to get to the source of this and understand why, right? Like, those things don't happen just because. What is it that purity culture is trying to do here? Why has shame and disgust been leveraged to control our bodies, to reinforce hierarchies of power and oppression, and to dictate a world in which we are all distracted by the mandate to police ourselves? our voices, our bodies, our minds, our innermost fantasies. Now, I, uh, over the last week, I've spent some amount of time in debate with, um, with evangelicals who have traveled across state lines to, to yell at us. They were at Pride, they were at a Planned Parenthood clinic a couple of days ago, and against my better judgment, I spent more than an hour uh, talking to them about why they were there and what they were doing. Now, I had gone to defend a clinic, uh, but uh, it wasn't long before we ended up on homosexuality. And having been fresh off of pride and like dusted with extra queer glitter, I felt equipped to actually talk to them a little bit about this because I was curious. Like, where is this coming from? What is it that you are so wedded to? And of course, they brought out the Bible verses. Chapter and verse, one after the other. And when we would talk about context, when we would talk about history, when we would talk about words like the fact that the word homosexual was not put into any English translation of the Bible until 1946, they actually would retreat from the so-called clobber verses, the ones that uh, biblical scholars have put a lot of energy into contextualizing to say, like, these are not actually what you think they are. This word does not mean what you think it means. And they retreated back to the phrase sexual immorality. This again is the crux of purity culture language. We are not supposed to be sexually immoral. And so when I had said, well, hey, you know, Jesus didn't actually say anything about queerness or queer relationship. They said, oh no, Jesus did. Jesus told us not to be sexually immoral. But when they do that, they are practicing something called eisegesis. This is the practice of reading a text and importing something that isn't there to make meaning of it. Because they have come with all of their cultural location, which like we all do, 
But like they've come with all of their cultural location. And so when they see the phrase sexual immorality, rather than asking, what does Jesus mean when he says it? They just think, what do I think sexual immorality is? What have I been told sexual immorality is? And therefore, sexual immorality in this reading is assumed to mean whatever the common prohibitions around sex are in any given culture. So what is sexual immorality? Well, to them, it is anything outside of a complementarian, uh, patriarchal, hierarchical marriage relationship. To me, it's something a little different. And so it is our task here, if we care about the Bible, to examine what immorality actually is. But purity culture comes with a prefabbed, prepackaged understanding of what it is. They will tell you, don't worry, you don't have to think about it at all. And it gives preachers and leaders in the church a lot of authority to be able to say, well, let me tell you, I'll tell you what sexual immorality is. I love what Maddie was talking about earlier in Cuba, having these grassroots conversations of discernment. This feels really holy and really religious to me. This is the community that Jesus was leading and teaching in, where there would be debate and discourse at the synagogue, where people would collectively work together to understand what something meant, discern the will of God through the people of God. That sounds holy as hell to me. But that's not what purity culture is interested in. Purity culture is not interested in your opinion. Purity, is not, purity culture is not interested in your experience or your body. Purity culture has a list of do's and don'ts. And they are intended to control you and it gives an enormous amount of authority to whoever is up front on the stage telling you what to do. Now, the telling you what to do, it is universal, but there is a particular edge, there's a particular weight to the conversations focused on telling women what to do. Boys and girls get very different sex talks from the beginning with purity culture. And a lot of it has to do with understanding girls and women as objects. As objects of men's lust, as objects of men's affections. And therefore, these young men are told you should really control your feelings, your lust. And women are told, girls are told, you should really control the feelings that men and boys are going to have about you. Linda K. Klein, who wrote the book Pure, Inside the Evangelical Movement that Shamed a Generation of Young Women and How I Broke Free, which is an extremely long subtitle but sounds very promising, she also, uh, she's written a lot about purity culture, and it's good stuff. She also um, is a part of Break Free Together, which is a nonprofit serving individuals recovering from gender and sexuality-based religious trauma, which I feel like basically everyone who ever walks into Zao could be served by that kind of organization. Um, so I just want to put that out there again. Linda K. Klein of Break Free Together. She talks about how uh, how these uh, gender constructions of sexual purity play out. That men and boys are taught that they are evil, right? Purity culture is premised on the idea that men are monsters and women are dangerous temptations. 
But again, hear the difference there. Men have agency as monsters and women are objects of dangerous temptation. And so there is this toxic expectation of of control, but it is about controlling the evil that is at the source of who you are. One of our community members here um, described his experience growing up in the 90s in a heavily purity culture influenced evangelical white space. And he was talking about their sex talk, their relationship talk. And it was the 90s, so like they were all in the dark with this like projector, you know, with their little, you know, wet erase markers and projected onto the wall, there was a, a picture of a heart. And their youth leader said, this is your heart. And you have been taught, you've been told, the scriptures tell you that you have to guard your heart. You have to guard your heart, which is like kind of a sweet sentiment, right? It's like your heart is precious and sensitive and vulnerable. We all deserve protection. And that, I think, is what the scriptures and and the idea behind guard your heart is really about. But he took that heart down and he put up another slide, another image. And it was a heart with a bunch of soldiers with guns surrounding the heart, guarding it, pointing away at any intruder. And, And he said, this is probably what you think of when I tell you to guard your heart. But that's not what it means. And he took that down and put on another one. This one had the heart surrounded by armed guards with the guns pointing at the heart. And he said, this is what I mean by guard your heart. Your heart is evil. Your heart will lead you to evil things. So you have to be on guard and guard your heart lest it lead you astray. This is one of the deepest, most fundamental lies of purity culture. It is premised on the idea that you are evil, your body is evil, your mind is evil, your heart is evil, and it needs to be controlled violently even by you on behalf of the church hierarchy who's going to tell you what to do instead. It is toxic, it is cruel, and it is really, really hard to root out when that kind of shame has been beaten into you since childhood. Now, purity culture is not just about sex and sexuality. It has implications for the body and all kinds of relationships, in particular, reinforcing performative gender roles and obvious policing about heterosexuality and suppressing queerness. Linda, Lake, Linda K. Klein puts it this way. In purity culture, gender expectations are based on a strict, stereotyped binary. Men are expected to be strong, masculine leaders of the household, church, and society. Women are expected to support them, to be pretty, feminine, sweet, supportive wives, and mothers. Now, as a queer person, it's actually really difficult for me to unpack how, how exactly purity culture has impacted me. Because there's so much stuff that's easy for me to say like, oh, it does not apply, does not apply, not about it. But that's because all the things that we're worthy of talking about were straight and binary. 
And everything else was coded and implied. How many things did purity culture coerce you to doing without ever having to say it out loud? And this is what happens when the body, the mind, the heart are characterized as evil. When boys and men are told that their minds are evil and not to be trusted. And girls, women are told that they themselves, their very bodies, their very beings are dangerous. And could cause not only them but others to do evil in the world. We long to be good. We long to be holy and connected and healed. We long to bring goodness into the world. And so when we are told that merely being without being completely on guard with guns pointed at our very hearts, that we will cause harm in the world, it is so distressing. And it can sweep us up in an instant, taking all of our creative and passionate and prophetic and revolutionary and liberatory energy away from examining the systems and structures and powers of this world into an internalized control to say, I must prevent myself from causing harm. And it is a distraction. I feel like it's minimizing to, to use that word, but oh my gosh, how awful is it to take all of that structure of evil, all of the systems of oppression in the world, and say, no, no, no. You only think that's the problem. You only think that's evil because of your evil heart. So take all of that energy, all of that confrontation, all of that prophetic creative vision about the way things could be, turn it inward with violence and fear, and you better control yourself. This is the heart of purity culture. And the way that that plays out with queerness and gender is something that I learned firsthand. Now, I was exposed to purity culture most in college. I had had a lot of different experiences in my life already. And before I was in a evangelical white campus ministry in college, I had been some other places. I had done some other things. I had had sexual and romantic relationships with women and non-binary people, not that any of us had that language about gender yet. I had uh, struggled with uh, trauma and PTSD and had self-medicated through heroin. And I was in the early stages of recovery. It didn't take a whole lot of work to tell me that I was dangerous or harmful, that maybe I was evil. And so I was pretty vulnerable. But I was also, probably as a way to protect myself from the heteronormativity and, uh, and some of those structures of like hierarchical relationships, I said, okay, well during this time, I'm in the first years of my recovery from heroin, I should be single and celibate anyway, whatever. And I just kind of backed off of it. I opted myself out. I was like, I'm not affected by this. I think that some of what you're saying is trash, but like, you know, not my thing. And so I could push on it, but it was an intellectual exercise because I felt like it didn't apply to me. Except that it did. Except that so much of what they told me still seeped into my body and my being affected my relationships. One of my really close guy friends told me once that I should stop telling people that I had ever had sexual and romantic relationships with women because it might cause one of my brothers to think about me sexually. 
it might cause them to sin against me. And so again, not even my sin, which I had already heard about and been like, but my responsibility to prevent the sin of men around me who might think of me in a queer way. Similarly, my gender presentation. Now, I showed up to campus ministry 19, really freshly in recovery from heroin, um, surly and queer. (laughs) And so I actually showed up in my gender presentation not entirely dissimilar to how I look now. Short hair, maybe a little longer, and it was dyed really dark. Glasses, black t-shirt, jeans, chucks, propensity for hoodies. That was, that was me. I had a few facial piercings, and I, I was like, definitely, I had like a scowl that, that has lifted in the years since. But as I got involved in this campus ministry, I, without really ever taking a lot of individual notice, started to experience some patterns. The women around me were giving me a lot of gifts. They would buy me earrings or lend me one of their bracelets that they thought would look really good on me. They would take me to the thrift store and pick out stuff that they thought I would look great in. They did my makeup for me when I told them that I wasn't really a makeup person and I didn't know how to do it. The men and women around me then would praise me up, down, and sideways when I looked more feminine. They would talk to me often about what it meant for me to be a woman of God, a woman after God's own heart, a Proverbs 31 woman. They told me that they really respected what I was doing staying single and celibate at that time, but that I that work I was doing was part of my preparation, that I was preparing myself, my body, and my heart for my future husband. I heard, a lot of respon- I heard a lot of messaging about how it was my responsibility to prepare spiritually, emotionally, and physically for my future husband with implicit fatphobic messaging about how that meant lose weight. I let my hair grow out I stopped dyeing it dark and let it turn blonde again. Somehow, I lost all my facial piercings. So when I showed up to campus ministry, I looked like this. And two years later, I looked like this. Campus ministry didn't have to tell me not to be trans. Campus ministry ushered me into a performance of femininity that was not me, was not mine, but I was told was holy, was faithful, and required. That suppressing of my queerness, that suppressing of my transness, that invitation into a performative relationship to prepare myself, all of that were prerequisites to being loved. That is what I was told would get me love and connection, a future of family and hope, a future where I was desired. Because as an AFAB person, that is the highest thing to which I could aspire, desirability. When women are treated as objects and property, then women and AFAB people can only aspire to be desirable to men or AMAB people who are more powerful, who are more gifted, who are more called, 
I knew that I was called to some sort of public ministry and leadership. And my heart was broken when one of my good, again, good guy friends in campus ministry, he called me after he had seen a movie, Amazing Grace, about William Wilberforce, who was an abolitionist in the UK. And he said, oh my gosh, I was watching this movie and seeing all the amazing things and like this movement for abolition. And I just, I thought of you. I thought of you and it just made me so excited for God's call in your future and your life. And I was like, wow, that really means a lot to me. And he went on. He was like, yes. Yeah, I mean, just someday you are going to make such an important, supportive wife to a man like William Wilberforce. That is what my dear friend, who loved me, saw as my highest ambition, to be a wife behind a man fighting for justice. Now, why? Why? (laughs) What is the point of all of this? I want us to ask that question continuously because I think that sometimes the wounds that we feel can be so deep that we, te- we need to spend the majority of our energy tending to those wounds, protecting ourselves from additional harm, and trying our very best to heal. But if we have any reserve energy whatsoever, we need to be asking why. Why was it important for that campus ministry to suppress my queerness, my transness, and my call to ministry? Why is it important to keep women and feminine power in a place of desirability and objectivity? Why is it important for men to preserve their place at the head of the household and and to suppress any emotionality, any gentleness, any desire for help or support? Like, just like real brief aside, being the head of household sounds like a bummer. Like, I, I would get into it with my friends, right? And I would say, like, relationships should be mutual. Relationships could be queer. What if there's no man in a household? And they'd be like, well, who makes the final decision? There was no skill around collective decision-making. There was no con- concept of what it meant to do something with support, Men were expected to head their household. That meant financially. That meant spiritually. That meant intellectually. They were supposed to be the end-all, be-all, not get any support from their partner or their children or really even their friends. And women were just supposed to, oh, mm, I have the greatest husband. This is a troubling hierarchy for all involved. For all involved. But it is one that deeply reinforces the structures of power that we have now. That again, say that it is normal that a few people have power over the many. That it is normal that we cannot question the authority of someone who is over us. That it is normal that all of us, even if we think something is wrong, turn that energy back towards saying, oh, I must be wrong. And the authorities, the people in power telling me what I need to do must be right. Now, (laughs) this has been going on for such a long time. And in the 30 years since purity culture, that particular flavor, 
what have we had as our big answer to it? What has been the big counter movement to embrace bodies and femininity and sexuality and queerness and transness? How have we rallied around our scriptures, which are radical and revolutionary? How have we uh, uplifted the parts of scripture that are sex positive and kind of dirty and like very beautiful? How have we held up queer love in the scripture as an example of holiness? We've had a long time to figure this out. And really, the best that we've done, for the most part, is to say, love is love. God doesn't care what happens in the bedroom. Now, I want to just shout out for a second and say that love is love is, is incredibly important. That God doesn't care what happens in my bedroom is a method of harm reduction. That any time that we have invoked these things, we are using the best thing that we have, the best thing the church has ever produced for us to defend ourselves, our queerness, our love. But it's not enough. It is not enough to say, leave religion outside of my relationship. It is not enough to say, we shouldn't actually be talking about sex. What a divisive issue. It's not enough. We deserve better. We deserve better. And luckily, God has supplied us with so much better, you guys. The Bible is really queer. The Bible is really sexy. The Bible is really complicated and wild. The Bible has a lot of differing opinions in it. The Bible is, does not have a consensus on sex, and good Lord, it is not pure. <laughs> It is the church that has narrowed and reduced everything. But we actually have a lot to stand on, a lot to draw on, a lot to give us hope around pursuing a sexual ethic that actually engages some of the harms associated with sexuality. Because you know what? It's not enough to say, let's not talk about sex or keep your religion out of my sexuality. Because while we want to stop that harm, there are two really important things that we still need to name. One is that sex is good. It's not enough to say sex is neutral. We have to say sex is good. Sex is holy. Sex is not defined in the same very narrow, heteronormative, prescriptive way that purity culture understands it, right? Sexuality is fluid. Sex and connection means a lot of different things. And it is holy, it is kinetic, it is powerful. Again, it roots us in our bodies. How much more energy would we have for movements of liberation if we felt completely free to be in our bodies and connected with the people that we love and trust and have a consensual mutual sexual relationship with? How much more energy would we have to be creative and prophetic if we were sexually nourished and we felt good about that? Sex bodies, connection. These things are good and holy and we need to defend them, not just avert our gaze and say, you can't go there. And because sex is powerful, it is dangerous. There is predatory sex, 
Sex can be violence. Sex can be a tool in emotional abuse and manipulation. And as people who are committed to defending the most vulnerable, we have to have a sexual ethic that has an answer to that, that has a reaction to that, that can protect and defend people who are victims of sexual violence. And we can't do that by just sort of papering over it and saying, love is love. So how, how do we develop a sexual ethic that uplifts our sexuality as holy and good and gifted, that recognizes how powerful sex is for good, for creating the kingdom, and also how then it can be abused because anything powerful can be abused, and how it can harm and how we are called to protect one another. God does care about your sex life, not about judging you or using it as a reason to reject and hate you or control you. God cares about your sexual well-being, your safety, your intimacy. God wants you to have nice things. God made you for this, made you for connection, gave you a body that feels, gave you a body with butterflies and jolts, gave you a body that is sensitive and deserves protection and connection. We have to protect one another's ability to have nice things. That is a mandate of our faith. And when we do, we will tap into a whole new power, a whole new imagination for a different, holier, more just world. So how do we get to this new ethic? It can be really hard to imagine when we are so steeped in a really toxic one. But this is one of my passions, y'all. It's one of my passions to revisit the things that have been corrupted, including scripture, from marginalized identity and experience and reinterpreting. Because that understanding that we have, that purity culture is biblical, that comes from a very narrow source. And that source is usually white European, male, able-bodied, and like very limited. And so when we engage in that grassroots conversation, when we collectivize our discernment, when we open up, when we ditch the shame and talk openly about what we believe is really happening here, things start to look very, very different. And so we need a feminist, queer and trans-informed, body-positive, sex-positive approach to ethics, and we're only going to get there biblically if we take that same feminist queer and trans-informed, body-positive, sex-positive perspective to the scriptures. And so I want to revisit the text that we started with today. Before we leave here, we're going to have a different take on even just this one scripture. So can we put it back up? Okay, so first things first, how we read and translate matters. We have a practice here that sometimes we follow and sometimes we don't. Um, But a couple community members today, uh, Ruth, who was reading with us, um, uh, kind of invoked this this practice of sort of retranslating the text a little bit. So a lot of texts will say brothers or brothers and sisters. Today here we have siblings. And you may have noticed that when we talk about God, we use she, her pronouns. Now this is informed by our understanding of who God is and who the people of God are. 
And so we approach this text, which is meant to speak to the people of God, and we call the people of God siblings in Christ, and speak about God, and we uh, expand our understanding of who God is by naming her femininity, naming her she, her pronouns. So that's one thing that we can do, is reapproach the text itself and the translation itself. So we start by saying, so then, siblings, we ask and encourage you in the Lord Jesus to keep living the way you already are and even do better in how you live and please God just as you learned from us. This is an affirmation, right? This is an affirmation that human beings are good, that community pursuing goodness is holy, that we can be trustworthy to learn and discern together. Keep doing what you're doing. And grow, challenge yourselves, be held accountable. How can we be better? You know the instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. God's will is that your lives are dedicated to her. I want you to just sit for a moment and think about how different it feels to hear your lives are dedicated to her. Does that feel any different to you than being called to dedicate your lives to him? Does it nuance it for you at all to think about feminine divinity and to say, my life should be dedicated to the divine, holy feminine? This is a different approach to faithfulness and dedication. This is not subservience. This is not following a set of rules. This is leaning into feminine power and divinity. This means that you stay away from sexual immorality. This is where we get to this, this phrase, sexual immorality. But now that we have decided to remove ourselves from the purity culture that has defined that phrase for us, what do we actually mean? What is sexual sin? Earlier this year, we spent several weeks talking about sin from a really radical perspective. We talked about how sin is separation. That wholeness is holiness, and so healthy connection, relationship among all creation is perfection. And so anything that tears apart, anything that wounds relationship with God, with culture, with community, and with the self is sin. So what kind of sexual act could actually harm our relationship? One, the point of sex is connection, whether it's connection to the divine Connection to a person or people. Connection to yourself, to your body. And I just want to shout out, like, there's some of that in the Bible too. A person alone touching themselves in a sexual manner and having divine ecstasy. It's in there, I promise. So, like, sex is about connection and intimacy. But we can all imagine sex that harms a relationship, that alienates somebody from their own body, from a relationship, from a community, that is sexual immorality. That is the thing that we need to stay away from. And I would venture that that qualifies purity culture as sexual immorality. Because that alienates us from our bodies, from our relationships, from God. That fills us with shame, that causes us to crawl into ourselves and hide from God, from one another, and even our own desires. That is sexual immorality. Purity culture is sexual immorality. And we are called by the scriptures to stay away from that. They go on. 
Learn how to control your body in a pure and respectable way. Don't be controlled by your sexual urges like the Gentiles who don't know God. Now, I just want to say that like, this is part of the scripture that has been pulled out and singled out, that idea of control. And so that language can be really triggering. And I think it's fair for us to say, like, that's part that we don't want to redeem. We can leave that on the table and say, hey, that language is no longer helpful. For a historical context perspective, um, I just want you to know like that this letter is one of the things that's kind of under a little bit of extra scrutiny because more conservative theologians kind of complicated the theology of other parts of scripture by bringing stuff in about respectability. And so we can, from an academic and historical perspective, say this stuff is questionable, and from a personal experiential perspective, say like, hey, this stuff has been used to harm so much that like we're actually not going to pick that back up. And I think that that's a legitimate way to interpret this passage, to say we're not going to talk about controlling your body as a pure and pure and respectable ways now. But I think that there is a lot to say about uh, the people who are controlled by their sexual urges, who don't know God, and I think that we can think about a lot of people in positions of power and authority, especially in those churches that are preaching purity culture from the front and not controlling their urges in predatory sexual relationships once worship is over. And we can say, yeah, that is not holy. That disqualifies you from leadership. This is not biblical. And finally, the last and most important part of this passage, no one should mistreat or take advantage of their brother or sister in this issue. This is the crux of sexual morality, consent, mutuality, sharing of power, connection. When we reinterpret this scripture from a queer and feminist and trans lens, we see it very differently. Our sexual morality is about respect and consent. It's about creating opportunity for intimacy and self-knowledge. It's about harnessing the power of sexual connection for the flourishing of creation rather than using it to shame and control and coerce people. Sex and bodies are powerful, and they are tools for good. Can you imagine a world where we have a sexual ethic that recognizes queer spirituality and feminine power and witchery and all of these things are sexually charged in a good and holy way because our sexual ethic is about consent and respect and connection? This is a different kind of faith. Now, I have gone way over my time, so I promise you I will end here. But I want you to know that for the next four weeks, we are going to be unpacking these things. Next week, we are going to focus particularly about how love and sex should be mutual. And we're going to break down purity and patriarchy. Talk about where that comes from and the radical message of equity and equality that Jesus has in defense of women and AFAB people. After that, we're going to talk about that whole idea that you are a chewed up piece of gum. We are going to reject the ideas that purity is what earns you worthiness. And we are going to locate our worth in our divine, God-given holiness. Because our worth is not earned by having or not having sex. Then we're going to talk about how sexuality and romance are a spectrum. 
We're going to celebrate that sex is nuanced and talk about the ways that the idea of premarital sex or even virginity is a made-up construct of heteronormative nonsense, and we are going to embrace the full spectrum of what it means to be a sexual person. And finally, we are going to talk through and construct a new ethic. We're going to have touch points to say, am I being the kind of person I want to be? Not based on an arbitrary list of rules from men in power, but based on an ethic of love, a faith that calls us to revolution, and a hope for a new kind of intimacy. Your mind is not evil. Your body is not evil. Your heart is not evil. Your sexuality is pure already. And you deserve nice things. Will you pray with me? Good and holy God, we pray for courage and hope as we encounter a new way of being, a new way of connecting with ourselves and our community and your scriptures. God, give us the hope and creative prophetic power to imagine a new sort of world in which we are liberated and whole, in which our bodies and desires are respected, in which consent is key, and we can all connect in the ways that feel most holy and whole to us. God, we lay down our shame. We embrace our worth and beauty and perfection in your eyes. And we pray that you would help us to fill this world with your divine, feminine, holy power. Amen.